Today's reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. You may find it in your bulletin. Hear the life and words of our Savior, for this is the word of the Lord. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats to the shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Thank you for reading for us uh, this morning, uh, Brian. And uh, as you notice... I'm sure all of you that we read from the New Testament this time because we're finished our little short series on Ecclesiastes and we're entering into a, a different series this morning. Uh, what we're going to do, I don't know if you know this, uh, how carefully or closely you follow the, the church calendar, but we're in the season of Lent. Most of you would recognize the season of Lent by the roll up the rim to win cups that uh, Tim Hortons puts out around this time of year. There is a, a there's, I don't know, urban legend that roll up the rim to win happens at this time of year because they don't, Tim Hortons wants to prevent you from giving up coffee during Lent. Is it true? I don't know. Anyhow, so what is Lent? We're, we're going to start a series on Lent. Lent's been going on for a while. We're a little late to the game, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. The point of Lent, the, the Lenten season, is to kind of focus our thinking and our reflecting on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So in the church calendar, uh, we're moving toward Easter weekend, obviously, and therefore the church spends time reflecting on its relationship to Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross on that Good Friday many centuries ago and then rose again uh, in the resurrection from the tomb. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, like I said, spend a few weeks focusing, thinking about our relationship with Jesus Christ. How's your relationship with Jesus Christ? What's it like? Maybe some of you would say, I've got a good relationship with Jesus. It's a, an intimate relationship that I have with Him. It's a personal relationship that I have with Him. It's a healthy relationship that I have with Him. Maybe others of you would say, I have a terrible relationship with Jesus Christ, frankly. Uh, I'm mad at Him. 
I'm going through some stuff that I don't understand. I've had experiences in my life that do not make any sense to me. I've suffered a lot. And frankly, I'm a little ticked. And he has not been explaining himself to me the way I think he ought to be. And so I don't have a very good relationship with him at all. Some of you might say, I don't, have a different, I don't have a good relationship with him because my relationship with him is very distant. He seems far away and kind of abstract. My relationship with him is kind of formal. You know, he's God, I'm not, and I have to pay deference to him, that kind of thing. Or maybe you're saying, uh, relationship with Jesus, uh, that sounds like crazy talk. I don't have a relationship with Jesus. How can you have a relationship with someone who's dead? And that's because you're a skeptic, understandably. There are people here who are skeptics. They wonder whether Jesus is who he says he is. And so when I talk about a relationship with Jesus, they say that just sounds weird. How can you have a relationship with someone who's dead? If you're a Christian, my guess is that if I were to ask you, and it was just you and me, right? Nobody else around to overhear our conversation, right? What's your relationship like to Jesus? Your answer would probably be something like, it's complicated. Because relationships always are. Don't be surprised at that, okay? If you, if you are a Christian and you're afraid of admitting that you have a complicated relationship with Jesus, meaning sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. Sometimes things are going well, sometimes things are not going very well. Sometimes things are awesome, sometimes things are terrible. And you feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty about that. That's how relationships work, even with a perfect being. And the reason it's like that even with a perfect being is because you're not a perfect being. And so usually the emotionalism is your fault. Well, actually, it's always your fault. But it's complicated, right? It's not just always one way. There's degrees to your relationship with Jesus. And how do you, how do you, how do you figure all that out? Well, that's what we're going to try to do uh, over the next few weeks together. We're going to think about Jesus and a relationship with Jesus, what it looks like over the next few weeks of Lent. And we're going to do it through the lens of a particular relationship that Jesus had recorded here in the New Testament. The relationship that Jesus had with Peter. I identify with Peter very, very closely. Uh, Peter is, he can be very bold. Uh, he can be very impulsive. Peter can be very emotional. I can be that way. Some of you maybe uh, aren't like Peter so much, but you, you understand what, what I mean when I say Peter is a fascinating figure because in his, his relationship with Jesus, you know, there, there's Peter who's the one who says, when Jesus asks, who are you? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then later on, people are like, you're friends with Jesus. And he says, I never knew the man. Peter's the guy who uh, at one point, uh, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet, and he says, don't wash my feet. You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, well, if you don't let me wash my feet, your feet, i got nothing to do with you. Well, then fine, wash my whole body, right? Like, he's all over the place. Peter's the guy who says, Peter's the guy, out of all the disciples, who says, Jesus, you're walking on the water. Call me out. I'll walk on water with you. And, he, and, Peter, and Jesus says, come on out here, Peter. And Peter comes and starts walking out on the water, and then all of a sudden he looks down, and he goes, ah, I'm sinking. Help me, Lord. I'm going to die. All in the same moment. He is an absolutely fascinating figure. He is so human. 
His relationship with Jesus is all over the place. But here's the thing. What is so fascinating about the interactions between Peter and Jesus is that you see that Jesus sticks with Peter. Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. Jesus doesn't even, it seems, tire of Peter. He sticks with Peter through thick and through thin all the time. Maybe you are like me and you see a bit of yourself in Peter. Maybe you don't. Regardless, what I hope happens over the next few weeks as we analyze this relationship between the Apostle Peter and Jesus Christ is that you will see more of Jesus. Not that so much that you'll see yourself in these stories, but that you'll see Jesus in these stories, that you'll see his strength and his gentleness and his commitment and his patience and maybe, for some of you, it'll be a, an opportunity for you to begin a relationship with him. And for others of us, maybe an opportunity to renew our relationship with him. Okay, so that's where we're going. Today we're going to look at this very first encounter with Peter. Um, you can follow along with these, uh, these notes on the, on the back of the bulletin. There's a bit of an outline that helps you understand uh, What's what I'm trying to get across here this morning. We're going to look at three things about entering into a relationship with Jesus, because this is where Peter meets Jesus. This is where the relationship uh, with Jesus begins for him. And we're going to see these three things unfold in this relationship that Peter has with Jesus. And the first thing we discover is, is when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, sometimes Jesus makes absolutely no sense. What a great start, eh? Look at the story. Jesus is in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a city on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was a lake in, uh, in Palestine, in northern Palestine. And it was sort of the base of Jesus' operations. This is where he began his ministry, and he returned there many times, sort of to recharge and regroup, etc. And it was a fishing village. And Jesus is in Capernaum. And he's already been preaching a little bit, so people are starting to hear the buzz and are going out to, to, to see him because of his celebrity. And he goes down to the beach, or the shoreline anyway, and uh, he has this massive crowd with him. And he's going to preach to them, but he sees that he needs a better platform than the one he, than one he has, and he sees a bunch of boats lying around. And he says, says to Peter, who's one of the owners of the boats, he says, Simon, that's his name, at least at the beginning of this story, he says, Simon, I, I, I need to use your boat. Um, because I want to pe preach to the people. So P Peter says, okay. So he, he gets in the boat, and he uses this boat kind of as a floating pulpit in order to reach the crowd. And the story very quickly zeroes in on the exchange between Peter and Jesus. You start, like, the story starts with Jesus preaching to a crowd, but there's, like, nothing about Jesus preaching to the crowd in the story because it wants to focus in on this interchange between these two characters. Jesus finishes preaching, and then he says to Peter, okay, I'm done preaching. Hey, here's what I want you to do. Row out into deeper water, like in the middle of the lake somewhere, and throw out your nets, and you'll catch a big catch. Now, stop right there, okay? This idea makes no sense. It makes no sense for three reasons. First of all, it makes no sense because of the boldness and audacity of what Jesus tells Peter to do. 
Jesus was a carpenter, okay? He knew how to build things. He knew how to, I don't know what he knew how to build because the Bible doesn't tell us, but as a carpenter, I'm assuming he, he could have built a house, right? We usually think of a carpenter as someone who built uh, like chairs and tables and stuff like that, but he probably was more like a stonemason and he was able to, to build houses and that kind of thing. And here is this carpenter telling a professional fisherman what to do. He says, go out and drop your fish, or sorry, drop your nets and catch some fish. Now understand, back then, the way you, went, the way you got an education was you didn't go to grade school and then high school and then maybe college or trade school or university or postgraduate education and on and on and on getting an education. You apprenticed. You hung out with someone who does what you do from the time you're about 12 years old and you learn how to do what they do so that you can start doing what they do like they do it and maybe even a little bit better. And so Jesus had spent all this time learning how to be a carpenter. Peter had spent all this time learning how to be a fisherman. Jesus is a landlubber. Peter is a seaworthy, seagoing guy. And Jesus says, hey, here's a, just a little tip. You, you should go out in the middle of the day and go drop your nets and catch a big fish. So it's pretty bold for him to tell Peter what to do. It's silly. For, it doesn't make sense for that reason. It doesn't make sense because it actually is a silly suggestion on the face of it. I mean, it's Jesus, so it's not in the end. But you know what I'm saying, right? This is the middle of the day. It's noon. It's high noon, basically. The sun is beating down on the water. The water is warming up, and it's very bright. Peter had been fishing all through the night, it says. Why? Because that's the smart, good time to fish. That's when the fish are hungry. That's, in the, at least in this part of the world, this is when the fish are active. And this is when the fish can't see your nets. When you drop down your nets in the middle of the day, the fish go, ooh, there's something in front of me. I better turn around and go the other way. And so it's silly to fish at this time of day, and yet Jesus tells him to do that. And then it's, it's, it doesn't make sense for one more reason. It's costly. Like Peter and his buddies, James and John, they've been fishing all night long. This is, have you guys ever watched that, what's that show, Extreme Fishing or, you know what, you know what I'm talking about? Who to what? deadliest catch, stuff like that. Like, have you ever watched any of those? That's hard. I've never really watched it because I don't know the name, right? But I've seen bits and pieces of it. Uh, it's really, really, really hard work. Like, you got to be tough to be a fisherman, fisher person, right? It, it's very hard work. These guys have been fishing all night long. They've been tossing out these nets and then pulling them back in, toss them out, pull them back in, row, 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 back into shore. Early in the morning, they finally come in. They take their nets. They've got to wash them and clean them and set them out to dry. They're finally all done. They're probably going to go stagger home and fall into their bed so that they can do it all over again. And what does Jesus say? Hey, take all that stuff you just cleaned up and let's do it all over again. It's costly. And yet, and yet, Jesus tells them to do it. It makes no sense. And Peter, in verse 5, he actually resists what Jesus says. Eh? You know, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. So he resists what Jesus is suggesting. But, and here's the incredible thing, okay? He also says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. First lesson, if you're going to be in a relationship with Jesus, you be better get used to saying, because you say so, I will do it. 
Jesus tells you to do things that don't make sense. And the question you got to wrestle with is how will you respond to Jesus telling you to do things that to you make no sense? Will you respond like Peter because you say so or will you respond like many children? Why? Right? That's what we do. We say why? When someone tells you to do something, when you tell your child to do something and they don't, it doesn't make sense to them, the very first thing out of their mouth is, why? Because we want an explanation. We want reasons. And Jesus is doing this to you all the time. He's telling you to do stuff that doesn't make sense. He says, give, give lots of your money away. And you want to say, uh, why? He says, don't fudge even a little bit at work in order to get ahead. And we say, why? If I do that, I'll never get ahead. I know someone who was telling me about um, life in politics. Some of you know this person as well because they were involved in life in politics. And this person was telling me that all the, all the political parties, it was sort of depressing, all the political parties suffer from corruption. I mean, you want to rail against the parties you don't like and say they're all so corrupt, but he said, Basically, they're all corrupt, and they all try to justify it by saying, look, we've got to do this to get into power, and once we're in power, it'll be different. We will be different. And Jesus says, you've got, you got to live your life with complete, absolute integrity all the time, and you say, that's impractical. Everybody's got to bend a little bit here and there. Jesus says, don't just... Be nice to your enemies. He says, love your enemies. Desire what is best for your enemies. He doesn't just say, uh, avoid the people who persecute you and stay away from them and don't upset them. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Intercede for them. Plead for, for what's, their, what's, what's, what's in their best interest before God Almighty. He says all kinds of crazy things. And we want to say, why? And when we say why, what we mean is, look, convince me. Convince me that this makes sense. Con convince me that this, this will be useful for me or practical for me, or, for me or beneficial for me. But you know what? What that means basically is this. You don't want to obey Jesus. You just want to agree with Jesus. You don't want him to call the shots. See, if, if your kids, set, this is a really important principle when you have young children, a little, here's a free piece of advice for people with young children. You do have to teach your kids the principle of do this because I said so. You do. Your kids need to learn that because of your station and because of your character, you can just be trusted. You can just be trusted. Because you're the parent, because God has put you in this role of authority over your child, and because you have demonstrated by your character that you are trustworthy, your kids need to learn to just do things just because you said so. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to do that, but they need to learn that principle because that's actually the principle of obedience. If you have to say to your child or your employee or your whomever, uh, well, here's all the reasons why I want you to do what I said, and they have to respond first by saying, yeah, I get that. I dig that. That makes sense to me. Okay, I'll do it. Then this is not a relationship of one obeying the other. This is just two people agreeing. But Jesus comes to Peter and he says, look, 
This is what I want you to do. I want you to go out there. And Peter simply says, because you said so, I'll do it. And notice, 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 Peter calls him master. He says, master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Peter understands that God calls the shots in the relationship. And friends, I just, look, if you don't have a meaningful, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ right now, I hope that you will understand that this is the big one. This is your big issue. This is the thing you've got to wrestle with. This is the thing that you have got to face. I'm not saying that you don't have other problems and issues surrounding the truth of Christianity, or maybe you've been hurt deeply by the church, or maybe you struggle with some of the crazy claims that Christians share, or maybe you don't like what Christians, how Christians behave sometimes. You can have all kinds of objections, but at the heart of the matter, it's this one. Jesus says, you want a relationship with me? I'm the boss. Doesn't mean you can't ask questions. Doesn't mean you can't say things like Peter said. You know, I'm not sure this is the wisest move. You're allowed to interact with him, of course, but he calls the shots. He's in charge. And sometimes what he tells you to do just doesn't make sense. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is, is if you're going to enter this kind of a relationship with Jesus, is you've got you to see that he will reconstruct your identity. In verse 8, it says, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, notice, first of all, it says Simon Peter. At the beginning of the story, it's just Simon. Now, it's Simon Peter. It's going to return to Simon at the end of this story, but when you move forward in the gospel according to Luke, it's no longer Simon, it's Peter. What on earth is going on all here? Uh, here? Luke is indicating to us that there is an identity shift happening in Peter's life. When you meet Jesus the way Peter met Jesus, okay, he will reconstruct your identity. And that name change is symbolic, is, is pointing us to this shift in identity. And you see how it unfolds with Peter. Peter obeys Jesus, throws out the nets, hauls in like a monster catch, a super catch, a break the bank kind of catch. It's the biggest catch he's ever had. And what is Peter's reaction? It's not, woohoo, we've totally hit the jackpot. I mean, my life has changed by this. His reaction in verse 8 is to run up to Jesus. Run up to Jesus in a boat, probably not, but you know what I mean. Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. That's interesting too. Like, how's Jesus going to go away from They're stuck in a boat. I mean, Peter doesn't know Jesus can walk on water yet, but that's just my own weird musings. Um, he changes the title. He doesn't call Jesus master. Now that he sees what Jesus can do and who he really is, he doesn't just call him master, he calls him Lord. Indicating that he doesn't just see Jesus as a man of authority, he sees Jesus as someone who is peerless. He is different. He has this divine component to him. It even says that he falls at his feet in submission to him. He sees Jesus' authority and he says, 
I now know something of who you are. I'm not saying Jesus, Peter knew exactly who Jesus was, but he knew that Jesus was not like anybody else and that there was something very different and very special and very powerful of him. And he runs up to him, and instead of saying, now I got you, he says, go away from me. Why? Because there's two ways that Jesus reconstructs your identity when you meet him as, as the Messiah, as your Messiah. The first one is he traumatizes you. See, whenever you really get near to the real God, you will find it unpleasant. It's, in fact, one of the ways you know that you are encountering, encountering the real God is that you find it an unpleasant experience because what happens is, is he doesn't just reveal something of himself to you, he reveals something of yourself to you. And that's the thing you don't want to see. It's interesting. Um, you know how you get these, uh, there's this Christian greeting card company called Dayspring. Many of you, I'm sure, are aware of it. You have boxes of their stuff in your house right now. I'm not knocking them. But sometimes you get a, a Dayspring card and it talks about drawing near to God and it's, and it's like a picture of a field or, or it's artwork and all these nice little pastel colors and, and it's all very warm and inviting, etc. And you think that, that drawing near to God is simply about warm fuzzies. But in the Bible, it's nothing like that at all. In the Bible, when you actually draw near to the living God, the true God, it is utterly traumatic. When you see God come down on Mount Sinai, when the people of Israel are gathered around that mountain and God actually shows up, there's an earthquake and a hurricane and smoke and fire and the people are freaking out. They are diving for cover. When Solomon is calling down God to bring his presence among God's people in the, in the built temple and God actually answers that prayer and he comes down in his Shekinah, what's called the Shekinah glory of God, actually comes down among his people, they all hit the deck and they're terrified. Because you see, when the living God actually comes down, you're attracted to him because of his superlative beauty. Like we, like we sang just a few minutes ago, you're attracted to his glory and to his majesty, but at the same time, you're repulsed by it. It's a weird mix. You kind of resent uh, uh, this this. this glory in this majesty because it magnifies your sin and your shortcomings. Listen, if you say you have been close to God and you've had a close encounter with Him and you are not messed up by it, the sludge of your life has not been stirred up. You know, you know how uh, you know, when you have sludge in water, it's, it's all mixed up and stuff, but if you leave it alone and you don't touch it, it all settles down to the bottom. And the water can look pretty clean and pretty good uh, on top, but eventually, if you shake the container that it's in or, or the pond or you throw a stone in there or something like that, and the water gets churned up, the sludge gets churned up as well, and you realize, oh, this is actually dirty and sludgy and gross. You have this when you go to a pond. I see some faces are like, huh? Don't, don't any of you ever go to a pond and you look at the pond and you're like, man, the water's like really clear and really nice and look at the bottom. There's a nice, you know, weeds on the bottom and stuff like that and then you try to step into the pond and all of a sudden, whoosh, all the mud comes up and the water gets really cloudy. Come on, people, experience life a little bit. <laughs> go to a pond this summer. When you meet the living God, he steps into your pond, man. 
And your shortcomings and your weaknesses and your failures, they are on display before His glory. I'm not saying they're on display necessarily for the whole world to see, but they're on display before His glory and His majesty. And that is utterly traumatic. Your heart is laid bare. I mean, if you're good at piano and you're going to go to a piano recital and play at the piano recital, and then all of a sudden, Long Long, you know who Long Long is? Like one of the greatest pianists in the world. He plays before you. Do you want to play now? No, you're traumatized. You're freaking out. You're like, he's amazing. I can't wait. I want to watch him and, 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 and stand in awe of how great a player he is. And then at the same time, you're like, but I, don't, I hate that guy. Why did he go before me? Now I'm going to look terrible. It's normal to be traumatized by meeting God. And that's what happened to Peter. That's why Peter says, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He recognizes this truth about himself. But at the same time, and this is what is so remarkable about the gospel, when you meet the real God, you're not just traumatized, you're affirmed. Because what does Jesus say in response to that? Don't be afraid, Jesus says to Simon. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. Now this is shocking, okay? What Jesus is saying is, is he's saying, Peter, follow me. I'm going to change your job description. I'm going to change your identity. I want you to follow me. Now, following Jesus does not mean I want you to take a course or, or watch a bunch of videos or, or, or check out this seminar or something like that. Remember I mentioned that back then you apprenticed. That's how you got your vocation. The best and the brightest always apprenticed with the rabbis. They were chosen by the rabbis because they were very talented and very brilliant. And Peter had already been rejected by the rabbis. But now here comes this like super rabbi who is different from every other rabbi he's ever seen or experienced. And that rabbi says, I want you to come with me. And to apprentice with the rabbi didn't mean you just kind of, like I said, watched the videos and took the seminar and wrote notes down. No, it meant you live with them. You become his family. You become part of the inner circle. You share his life with him. You are brought into the heart of things. This is, this is so affirming. Peter says to Jesus, I'm a wicked man. Jesus says to Peter, I know, and I want you. Come with me. I'll make you a fisher of, of people instead of a fisher of fish. What a friend. What an unbelievable friend. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a friend who, who can expose the hard truth about your shortcomings, but in the very moment they do that, they also affirm you to the sky and tell you that they cherish you and delight in you despite all of that ugliness? No parent, no friend, no spouse can do that. And the reason none other can do that, because none other is him. Jesus is the only one, the only friend who doesn't just talk to you, he died for you. See, in his dying on the cross, he proved these two truths. You are most, more wicked than you ever dared imagine. And that's the truth about your nature but you are at exactly the same time more loved and cherished than you ever dared hope. 
when you look at the, the cross of Jesus Christ, what do you see? You see that you are so bad that the Son of God had to die for your sin. That there was no other way in order for you to live. He had to die. The only way to pay for your sin was that God himself had to spill his blood for you. That's what the cross tells you. It's so repulsive. It's so traumatic. But at the exact same time, it is so affirming. Because when you look at the cross, you also see not just that you are so bad, but that you are so loved that the Son of God deemed it worthy to leave the throne room of heaven where he was basking in glories beyond your wildest dreams and he was being affirmed and cherished by multitudes of angels and the whole universe was bowing at his feet and he experienced glory innumerable and he said, I will lay that all aside and I will go into the world and I will live like a humble carpenter. I will be homeless. I will be rejected by my own people, by my own family. They'll think I'm crazy and I will teach among my people and tell them the way to God and then they will get a hold of me and they will take me to court and in a kangaroo court they will convict me of a, of a crime I never committed and then they will drag me outside of their holy city, the, the city that I promised to found for them and, I, and I, they will hang me on this piece of wood and they will spit on me and they will mock me and I know they're going to do this, I will go anyway. And I will take everything they've got and on top of that I will take God himself's judgment for their sin. Why? There's only one answer. Because he loves you. What a friend. What a friend. He can be so firm, yet so gentle, so tough, yet so tender, so challenging, but so accepting. Third thing. He doesn't just reconstruct your identity. He commandeers your life. In verse 11, it says, So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Wow. Again, remember, following Jesus doesn't mean add me to your life. Like, like you need a little more bran in your diet. You need a little more Jesus in your spirituality. To follow Jesus means... Give me your life. Hand it over. It's just understand, Jesus, following Jesus isn't even do what I do. You can't do what he does and what he's done. Rather, it is give me your life. Hand your life over to me. Look at Peter, and you can include James and John in this. They left everything for him, it says. What does that mean? Well, first of all, they left their financial success behind because here they are with the biggest catch of their lives right? On shore, everybody is like freaking out. How, we, they didn't even know that schools of fish this large existed in the Sea of Galilee. They are probably set for life. After years of labor, they've, they've hit the mother load. There's more on the beach than they've ever seen, and they just turn around and walk away. 
hey, Jesus, what's your, uh, you know, do you contribute to my retirement plan if I follow you? There's none of that. Just boom, gone. But it's more than that. It's deeper than that. They left their comfortable, predictable life, right? Their old identity as fishermen, this is what they knew. They knew how to live this way. You know, you ever notice old English names, right? How they tell you what a person did, right? So you've got like Taylor, what did I put here down? Smith, right? That blacksmith. Taylor, Fisher, Baker. It's not all that different from today. We often, very often feel like we know who we are by what we do. Because what we do takes up so much time in our lives. And so we often identify kind of who we are by what we do. But they walked away from that. They walked away from that identity. And not only that, but they walked away from the the predictability and the comfort and the security of this community. These were their peers. These were their people. Their families had lived in in this village probably for centuries. Everybody knew one another. Everybody knew what everybody else's grandparents were like. They, 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 They had this cohesion and this predictability to their lives. And you may say deep down, like on the surface, you may say, ooh, yuck, everybody knows your business and all up and in it. But deep down in your soul, what you really want is you want a community that you are so deeply embedded in that you don't have to put on airs and pretend to be anything but who you are and you know that you are loved and cherished. That's what these places were like. You knew your place. You knew your station. You knew your people. And they left the, the, all that security, all of it, boom, in a moment. How was it possible for them to give that up? Do you think, do you think Peter gave all that up because Jesus gave him fish? That's not it. It's not because P- Jesus gave Peter fish. It's because Jesus showed Peter who he was. I am the one who has come into the world and I am not rejecting you. And so Peter just said, I don't understand everything, but I got to go with them. I got to go with them. Now, we'll see that Peter has buyer's remorse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, uh, You've ever had buyer's remorse? I get it all the time. Impulsive people, that's our problem. Um, And Peter's going to experience some buyer's remorse. But understand this. Once you've really met Jesus, even though you're freaked out sometimes and you have buyer's remorse sometimes and you don't want to take the steps that he's calling you to, to take sometimes because it's all, it doesn't make sense to you, you can't go back. You can't. Because he's turned not just your life upside down, he's turned the whole universe upside down. Here was Peter. He was happily fishing, minding his own own business. By the end of the day, he's like, see ya, Dad. I don't know if he had one of those like hobo packs or what, but off he was with Jesus on this great adventure. It all started with an inconvenience. Jesus said, I need your boat. Peter says, sure, I can give you my boat. By the end of it, Jesus is like, I need you, all of you. Pretty inconvenient, but Peter said, okay. Now, some of you this morning, some of you, you have not followed him at all yet. You find Jesus attractive, but you also find him kind of repulsive. 
And I want to tell you this morning, that is a good thing. If that's you, that's a good thing. Because that means you're at least dealing with the real, real Jesus. And you may say, but it, it doesn't make sense to me. And that's okay too. But let me tell you, it won't all, it won't, even if you, even if you follow, it's not, it's not like once you, once everything makes sense, you'll follow. Because talk to anybody who is a follower of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Jesus Christ, and I don't care how long they've been doing it, they'll all tell you, it still doesn't always make sense. So I'm just appealing to you, don't wait until everything makes sense. Look at him. Look at what he's done for you. Meet him. And others of you, you're following Jesus, but you're not following him completely, right? You're holding something back. Maybe you're holding back your money. Maybe you're holding back your job. Maybe you're holding back certain relationships. Maybe there's things that you, that you don't want to give up to really follow him. Maybe it's fishing in your neighborhood. Look at him as well. You've got to do the same thing. You've got to look at him. You've got to look at what he's done for you. And you've got to see that even though it doesn't make sense, he's never, ever, ever steered you wrong. And he never will. Let's pray. Father, uh, teach us to follow. Just as Peter did, impulsive, impetuous Peter. May he be a pattern for us, but more importantly, may your son Jesus be a picture for us, a, and even not just a picture, but a, a true, living, breathing person for us who's called us to, to follow him and who we want to follow. Holy Spirit, empower us to do it to follow this Jesus with all of our being into the great quest, the great adventure that is the life of a Christian. And may we do it in order to bring glory to your name. In Jesus we pray, amen.